Hello everyone, this is Jacob Popia, the producer of The Apex. Today we interview Mr. Dean Kaler. We dive into his small town beginnings, then the event that changed his life, then picking up the pieces, then lastly, the mindset of not just surviving, but thriving. Subscribe and hope this pushes you toward your apex. Welcome to JJD Thoughts Podcast Episode 1. I'm Jan Almasy, your host, um, and today we're going to explore a topic that's pretty close um, and near and dear to the, the hearts of a lot of Ohioans. Um, we'll go ahead and start off by reading a background of the day um, that we're going to kind of, it's going to lead to the climax kind of, um, of what the podcast is going to be encompassing. So on May 4th, 1970, members of the Ohio National Guard fired into a crowd of Kent State University demonstrators, killing four and wounding nine Kent State students. The impact of the shootings was dramatic, and the event triggered a nationwide student strike that forced hundreds of colleges and universities to close. A top aide to President Richard Nixon suggests that shootings had a direct impact on national politics. Beyond the direct effects of May 4th, the shootings have come to symbolize a deep political and social division during the Vietnam War era. And to kind of set the tone for what we're going for today, there's a poem that was written by a gentleman named Ray Hansel in 1971. I'm going to read that for you. Who can forget that tragic day? The year 1970, the month of May. The National Guardsmen poised on a hill, their rifles aimed, ready to kill. Gunfire soon filled the air, people screaming and running everywhere. The Guardsmen were shooting at will, people afraid to stand still. Gun smoke drifted in the air, bodies were scattered everywhere. Four students lay there dead, others wounded by the flying lead. By now the cops were moving in, people were asking, where had they been? Untrained soldiers with loaded guns, killing people's daughters and sons. Many people wondered what gave them the right to move against the students with that much might. Why did they shoot into a crowd like that, knowing the students wouldn't shoot back? The students were armed with picket signs, but I wondered who committed the crimes. The students were marching against the war. What were the guardsmen there for? A demonstration that took a bad turn. Hopefully, lessons were learned from the events that took place that day when four college students were blown away. Now, on that note, today we have the privilege of sitting with a survivor of that day. Um, so, Mr. Kaler, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Um, so that that was really heavy. I mean, mm -hmm. those are that's some really deep, some deep things. But before we get to that point, I mean, that was obviously the college years of your life. And there's a lot of things that happened prior to, yeah. to making it to that day. So um, why don't you just tell us about where you grew up, uh, what that was like, um, and kind of the things that led up to that day, really. Okay. Well, I grew up uh, in uh, eastern Stark County and outside of a village called East Canton in Osnaburg Township. Um, I would walk to the family farm in the morning. It was about a half mile away. Uh, when I was old enough, when dad left for work, I'd go and, uh, help my uncle out with milking the cows in the morning. Um, uh, and then I would catch the bus over there. And then, um, uh, after football practice or when I didn't have football practice, I'd go there afterwards and, uh, work on the farm in the evenings. And I've obviously worked there all summer long as well. So I grew up in a rural environment, rural right. agricultural environment. I also grew up in the church of the brethren. And that was a large part of my life. I was the uh, uh, president or chairman or whatever the exact term was of our district uh, youth group, as well as my local youth group at the church. 
So I had a religious component in my life that was pretty important. Um, and so I, uh, you know, typically was just a farm boy. Um, when I graduated from high school, I worked for a year at Republic Steel on 8th Street in Canton, Ohio, uh, to save up enough money to go to college. I was scheduled to be at Kent in uh, fall of 1970, but we had a recession in the uh, uh, spring of 1970, early spring, late winter. And uh, I wrote to Kent and said, may I come early? So I, that's what put me on the Kent campus that particular day was the fact that we had a, an economic downturn or a recession at the time. And, um, you know, the rest is history at this point. So. <laughs> right. So uh, you mentioned working at, at Republic Steel. Uh, my grandfather worked at Republic Steel. What, what did you do while you, were, while you were there? I worked in the melt shop. So we took scrap steel and put it into a, either a 100-ton or 200-ton furnace and turn it into liquid steel. And how, how old were you at that point in time, like uh, handling steel and, and dealing with a giant furnace and everything? Well, I was uh, 19 years old. <laughs> nice. Yeah, uh, but, you know, they trained me well. Uh, I worked uh, with the guys on the particular turn that I was in. I was on a particular crew in that turn, and, uh, you know, we were assigned to a furnace every day when we walked in. And uh, then I eventually graduated to becoming what they called a gunner. Mm-hmm. And what I would do as a that gunner. That sounds intense. Well, it was. Uh, you would have to rebuild a certain part of a wall inside the electric furnace um, because the electrode on the electric furnaces, one of the electrodes, was closer to the, that wall than the other two electrodes were to the other walls. The other, it was a circular furnace. Right. And so you'd have to rebuild that wall with mortar and water and air. And uh, you'd be building probably about a inch and a half to two inch uh, divot in the side of the wall that was probably four feet by eight feet. Right. So for the for the listeners that hear the, uh, the call of the ice cream man in the background right now, <laughs> we are uh, exercising our mobile podcast studio um, to come visit Mr. Kaler, as you'll understand why later on in the podcast. But currently the ice cream man is tempting us to come out and buy a $5 drumstick. <laughs> or close to it. Anyway. Or close to it, right. So, okay, so you, you're born in a rural town, mm-hmm. um, and, and I can 100% uh, vibe with that. I mean, growing up the way that I grew up, being in 4-H and raising animals. And that, I mean, that does a lot, I think, to develop a mentality, a oh, certain yeah. mentality uh, that'll probably assisted um, with what happened on yeah. that day moving forward. Um, well, anytime you tend to large animals, uh, you know, you, you learn a certain uh, uh, respect for life. Right. Uh, I mean, you're dealing with cows and horses and chickens and pigs. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's farm work. I mean, you're cleaning stalls, you're feeding, you're watering, you're grooming you're taking care of them yeah i think that the biggest part that i took away from um from being in 4-h when i was that age um and just growing up in a rural community is the responsibility Mm -hmm. of being responsible for another life basically i mean you're those animals rely on you for food they rely on you to keep the pen clean they rely on you for a lot of things um and it's the kind of the gravity of that that sets in early on where it's like Oh, okay. If I don't wake up, just because I'm tired in the morning, if I don't get out of bed, this animal isn't going to eat. Right. And so it kind of gives you that, that that little bit of discipline that it takes to kind of get moving in the morning where, okay, my life means something. Because mm-hmm. if I don't do my part, then this animal's either going to be thirsty or it's going to be hungry. It's not going to show well. Yeah. It's not going to know me. Um, and when I try to walk it around the pen at the fair, it's going to run away from me because it thinks that <laughs> doesn't know you. Right, it doesn't know who I am. Yeah, well, I never joined 4-H, but uh, you know, uh, just living close to the farm and working on it every day, you know, I learned all the responsibilities that go along with taking care of large animals. I mean, yeah, I don't think that anybody um, really enjoys waking up before the sun comes up to go feed <laughs> or to go milk or anything like that. So, just became habit. Right. Right. Um, so we'll we'll go ahead and we'll talk about um, 1970 in okay. May, and so uh, I mean we just talked about the ice cream man and why we had to come visit you in your home um, to kind of record the podcast. So 
what happened on that day um, that, I mean, obviously forever changed the course of your life? Right. Uh, I was a student. I was uh, on campus that day. <clears throat> there was a demonstration that was planned. Um, but after the weekend of not knowing what our rights were, what our responsibilities were, what we could do and what we couldn't do, I was hoping that morning that when I got there, somebody would be there from the university to talk to us about what I, what we could do, what we couldn't do, what our rights and responsibilities were. But none of that happened. There was just a couple of students with a bullhorn talking about the isms of the day. Communism, capitalism, socialism, sexism, racism, you name it. And then the National those Guard. Be, those seem to be pretty hot topics even now. I mean, those, yes. those isms I don't think have really ever left the forefront of people's minds. You're absolutely right there. I mean, they're, they're still hot button topics. Right. Even though we made great strides in many of those areas, there's still a lot of sensitivity I agree. Uh, needs to be dealt with along the way. So anyways, the National Guard were near where the old, old ROTC building was that had been burned down. Uh, by the way, everybody says the students burned it down, but the arson report does not blame the students for burning it down. So, uh, you know, go figure. But anyways, mm -hmm. to, after my diversions, uh, the, um, uh, they were there. We were on the side of the hill called Taylor or Blanket Hill, uh, right beside Taylor Hall uh, in the center of campus, right behind the, uh, the student union. And um, we were waiting for direction. We were waiting for instructions. And none of that was happening, except the National Guard came out and told us that we were gathered illegally. And I'm thinking, wait a second, there's you know maybe 50, 60 of them. And I'm looking around, and I see about 5,000 students basically surrounding them. Uh, it's like, okay, <laughs> what are you going to do to move us here? It didn't make sense. Tell us something, but they didn't. They just came out and uh, once again told us we were gathered illegally and that we had to disperse. And uh, that was greeted with a lot of jeering, cheering, uh, name-calling, uh, finger-pointing, uh, uh, you name it. Uh, nothing was violent. Um, there were some stones being thrown by some students, but the National Guard didn't get close enough to be hit by the stones. And uh, uh, the next thing we know, they were starting to shoot tear gas at us. They were launching them out with their grenade launchers or tear gas launchers, whatever they are called. And that obviously dispersed everybody who was on the side of the hill. Didn't do anything for the, you know, five, 600 people behind them. But uh, they then marched out in formation with their bayonets and uh, gas masks on and their helmets, uh, marching toward where we were all standing and we were now leaving. Uh, I remember going up around the hill, down the other side, and they followed along and went into the practice football field. I didn't go into it because it was surrounded on three sides by a fence. And um, I, once I got to a place where I felt safe, I covered my, washed my face off with a uh, wash rag that I had carried in a plastic bag in my pocket to get rid of the tear gas. And uh, I remember grabbing a handful of gravel at my feet and flinging it in the direction of the National Guard, who were now about 100 yards away, a full football field away from where I was. I actually hit some students who were in front of me. They turned around and swore at me and hollered at me. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I probably would have if you would have yeah. hit me with a rock. <laughs> but it was, I didn't throw it hard. I mean, I just basically, uh, you know, lobbed it in that direction. Right. But the, uh, I saw them gathered together in a huddle, and they then started marching back up from where they had come towards Taylor Hall. I thought, well, I'll follow along. I looked at my watch, and it was about a quarter after. And so I sort of followed along, staying at a nice safe distance from where they were at this point in time. And then I saw them reach the top of the hill and turn in unison and start firing down the hill towards where I am. And I'm, I'm about, just about 100 yards away from them at this point in time. And as, as a farm boy who carried a shotgun and shot rifles and pistols, you know, uh, I learned very long time ago that you never assume a weapon is uh, unloaded. You always assume it is loaded. So I had no illusions about um, those weapons being loaded from the very beginning unlike some other students who thought they were they right. were not loaded. I remember jumping on the ground, and I could hear the bullets hitting the ground around me. Talk about a crazy, scary sound. Especially and, for, a, for a college. I mean, 
it's different for somebody that's in a profession yeah. um, that that's on a contract that they sign or they, they mentally prepare for a situation mm-hmm. like that. But for a college student yeah. that, like you said, uh, tried to get there early. Yeah. And that's the only reason why you happen to be on campus that day to be laying there and hearing yeah. rounds hitting next to them had to have oh, been yeah. surreal. It was very surreal. Uh, and then all of a sudden I thought to myself, I'm okay, I'm, I hope I don't get hit. Then I did get hit at the moment that I thought that thought in my brain. And um, it didn't feel anything like you see on TV. It felt like a bee sting. And I didn't roll over 10 times and scream and holler and flail. You know, all I felt was my legs got real tight and then they relaxed. Just like when you pith a frog in zoology class, you stimulate those nerves. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened to my legs. I was now paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, But also being a Boy Scout, uh, I knew I knew immediately when it happened to me because of my Boy Scout training. And uh, I, I'd done extensive first aid training. I'd gone to what they called uh, first aid jamborees. And our team placed usually in just about every jamboree we went to. And uh, so I knew that I had a back injury. I knew I had a spinal cord injury. And I knew what to do to, to deal with it. I didn't move. Uh, I also noticed that I was starting to breathe uh, heavily. So I knew I got hit in the lungs and I reached around and I wasn't bleeding externally. So I knew I was bleeding internally. There was no blood uh, spot on my jacket that I had on at that particular time. And, uh, and then all of a sudden the bullets were still coming. And I thought, oh my God, they're still shooting at me. And, um, you know, I just, uh, you know, prayed that I wouldn't get hit again. And then all of a sudden the, the shooting stopped. So, uh, and when it stopped, it was very quiet for an eerie second. And then all the screaming and hollering started again, but this time it was a much higher pitch, much higher tone. Uh, it was the students now seeing the, the damage that had been done and who were now terrified beyond belief after being shot at and now seeing people bleeding to death on the ground in front yeah, of them. The very, the very real ramifications of lead flying through the air. I was, yeah. Like you said with, um, I mean, the way that you described that initial injury, um, not being like what people see on TV. I think that it's very different uh, for that group of people. I mean, it must have been insane to, to process, okay, this isn't TV, this mm-hmm. isn't a yeah. show, this is this is real life, There's, this has happened. Yeah. And now there's that that realization like you said just escalates that that scream to to the next level yeah well i mean like i said i was a farm boy so i had shot rabbits i shot pheasants um didn't shoot anything else because back then we didn't have a lot of deer in this part of northeast ohio back then so those were the main animals that uh, i hunted as well so uh, you know I, i i had seen what happens when you someone gets shot Right. Yeah, at least an animal anyway. And uh, it still freaked me out. And then uh, students started gathering around me at the time. And uh, um, uh, the next thing I know, you know, there's people wanting to turn me over. And I said, no, 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 I can't. I've got to be still. And it seemed like it took forever for the, the ambulance to get there. Apparently, the people who fired their weapons, the National Guard, didn't send somebody down to go get an ambulance. Uh, some student apparently ran down the hill and hollered, they shot people up there, get an ambulance, get ambulances going. And so that's when the ambulances came. It took forever, it seemed like. But uh, you know, I was thankful that I was still alive, uh, thankful that I was still awake, uh, thankful that I still had my brain, and uh, I was getting attention finally. And thankful, thankful that you were a Boy Scout at that point. I mean... That yeah. I, I know that they always say that Boy Scouts are prepared for everything, but um, being having the knowledge um, coming from a nurse, the knowledge to, to be immovable um, at that point, realizing that you had had a spinal cord injury probably did uh, an inexorable amount of saving any type of yeah. um, further injury that could have could have happened. Well, what happened was the, the M1 or a 30-06 caliber rifle, the one they carried in World War II, uh, shattered my thoracic 9, 10, and 11 vertebrae. And my injury level is right around a 9, 10. Some doctors call it 10, some doctors call it 9, depending on how they do their test. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I remember then being loaded into the ambulance as I was being driven out of the college uh, at that point in time, the university, 
I saw all these telephone trucks lined up everywhere. And uh, they were, the guys were up on the posts. And I, I thought that was strange. I'd never seen so many telephone trucks on my way out of the campus and out on the East Main Street going towards Ravenna where the hospital was. So, uh, you know, I found out later that uh, they must have pre-positioned uh, telephone people there to turn off the phones if anything had happened, um, which didn't make a lot of sense because when something happened, they decided that they were going to close the university. And so you had uh, 20,000 people not being able to find a way to communicate with the outside world to figure out how to get out of there. Right. So that, that was weird. Then I got to the hospital and I was uh, lying on a gurney in the uh, hallway of the emergency area. Uh, before anything happened, he just unloaded me. And I heard a nurse holler, uh, get blood types on all these people. And I thought to myself, I got all that. So I reached into my wallet, pulled out my uh, ID, my insurance card, and my I had two blood donors card because I had given blood uh, a high, as a high school student when we were eligible at uh, Timken Mercy Hospital. But I also had blood that I had donated at the uh, the blood bank in Kent because it was time for me to do it and I was going to drive back to Kent and give blood. So I donated blood there. And uh, the nurse, I saw a nurse walking by says, I think you need these. And she goes, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> I said, yeah, you're welcome. But what are we going to do next? That's amazing. The uh, Just those little preparedness things uh, can really help expedite situations. Oh, it, it really did. Next thing I know, they were wheeling me into an emergency room. Uh, and getting me prepped for surgery. And then all of a sudden, I had a surprise visitor I wasn't expecting. Um, the, uh, the equivalent of a bishop, our district secretary, as we called them back then, uh, in the Church of the Brethren, uh, was at the hospital. And he came down. And, well, it was, he was leaving his home in Hartville at the time of the shootings because I didn't tell you that uh, within five minutes of the shooting, a student had come to me and asked me if I knew my phone parents' phone numbers. And I gave them to him because they were in my brain. And he called both parents. My mother had the wherewithal to call our, our, uh, our district secretary, who lives in Hartville. And he says, you, lucky you got me. I was just walking out the door to go to Ravenna, to the hospital. And she says, well, Dean's there. He was shot at Kent today. And, he, you know, he, he, he apparently uh, said a prayer with my mother, and he says, "I go. I'm going." And he hung up the phone and left. And he was there, and uh, I got a chance to see a friendly face, uh, someone I knew because his son and I were best friends. And uh, I, uh, I was very thankful that uh, he was there, and I got a chance to talk to him for a few minutes. And uh, you know, uh, he said a prayer with me as well before they finally put me out. I think I was going out as I said amen <laughs> yeah it's amazing the um the impact that a friendly face can have on even in the most dire situations it one really thing was. that yeah I mean we talk about in nursing um is uh just like even holding a hand mm -hmm. um, before a patient goes into surgery or something like that can completely change that person's anxiety level oh. just feeling that connection to another human being um mm -hmm. and knowing that you're cared about can totally totally change the way that you're perceiving a situation. Cause I'm sure at that point, um, one thing that I, I, I want to address is there's uh, people focus on the, the overcoming of the situation and every, and everything that happened. But I'm sure at that point in the hospital, like there must've been a point where I mean, you were just in an abyss. There was a darkness at some point where you were just kind of trying to initially trying to process everything. I mean, thankful to be alive and thankful that you're, you're in the hospital because you could be still on the Hill. Well, um, I didn't run into any abyss at all until later on, whenever I was coming out of the induced coma. But uh, I mean, every, everything seemed very calm. Everything seemed very clear. Uh, I think it was the extensive first aid training that I had. You know, I knew I had to keep my wits about me right till they knocked me out. You feel like you're, you're just, you were in that, that like, uh, adrenaline zone. yeah, that yeah. heightened state of awareness. We're just trying to survive mm -hmm. at that point that I, that I was. And, uh, I was thankful that I had that wherewithal to keep that level of focus because I think it helped me a lot. I didn't freak out. I didn't go crazy. I didn't, uh, you know, get hysterical, you know, it was all just, 
do what I needed to do to keep my mind square. And that, that, that discipline is, I mean, that's not uh, the typical response. I mean, that's, that's, that's something that you must've built. I mean, between being a rural child and then being in the boy Scouts and everything else, I, I always preach, um, discipline, um, to people in, in mentality and physicality and everything. So even in dire situations like that, that mental discipline is what you say, I mean, keep, kept you from further injury, kept you alive. Well, that, that, um, that was part of my hospital. training. I mean, when you're a first responder and you're dealing with medical situation, you try to calm the patient. You make that connection with the patient. I was making connection with myself at that point in time. Right. You know, and I'm very thankful that I had that training and I had the ability to understand that no matter what happens, I'm still in good hands because of my faith. And uh, I knew that, you know, Nothing was going to, you know, really bother me at that point in time. Right. I was very thankful that I had my faith and my strength and my training. And your wits about you. Yeah. And it, it was just, uh, you know, I still sometimes marvel at the fact that I had, I did that when I was so young. But uh, like I said, it was hours of training, hours of training as a Boy Scout to get me to that point. Right. Okay. So, so we get to the point where they knock you out and you go through the surgery and then, yeah. um, you were in an induced coma for, uh, for an extended yeah. time for Start, healing. I started waking up sometime, uh, late Friday night, Saturday morning and I got shot on Monday and, uh, you know, it was, it was, a it was a long transition from unconscious to conscious. Um, uh, back this, now remind you, this is 1970. So we don't have the computers and the computerized machines that we have now. Uh, so, and we weren't using the, uh, uh, the best anesthesia at that point either. I'm sure in, in the seventies, I think we were still using ketamine probably to knock people out and that can cause some crazy hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know people that have, or I've, I've, uh, read stories about people being under anesthesia on ketamine and seeing dragons in the hallway or, yeah, or well, seeing crazy I just things saw, waking up. I just saw things moving in front of my eyes that were not familiar with my brain. Uh, but I, I, the first thing that I started noticing was I was starting to feel, and I could feel the pain. Um, when they operated on me, they took, broke three ribs and took out one of the lobes of my lung and uh, on, the, on the left side. And um, I was in a lot of pain. I could feel the pain. And then I started hearing things. And I could hear the snapping and the popping and the clicking and the clacking of the, the pumps and the machines that were going on at that point in time. And um, it, it, was, it was the weirdest sound. And then apparently I must have showed up on somebody's monitor that I was now coming into consciousness because nurse came over to talk to me and, you know, rub my arm and, you know, make connection with me and let me know where I was and uh, that I was in the intensive care unit and that everything was going to be fine now, that I was coming out of the whole situation, that, uh, you know, I just needed to relax and take it easy. And I did because, you know, my brain was starting to function eventually uh, as, as I was coming out of that induced coma. And uh, I, was just, uh, I, I was just thankful to be alive. You know, I thank God every day that I'm alive um, at this point, even after 48 years. Um, that, uh, you know, I was going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that that's a pretty stiff realization, waking up hearing, like you said, the kick, the clicking and the, the, the beeping and everything else. And then not only that, but then realizing that all of those machines are hooked up to you in one way or another, uh, and keeping you alive. Well, they had my arms tied down. I was also on one of those air beds. So they had these tubes that were inflating and deflating, and inflating and deflating to keep me from having pressure sores on my back and my bottom along the way. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, I knew the pain wasn't just the fact that they operate on me, but I had chest tubes stuck on both sides of me. And uh, I had tubes down my nose and tubes down my throat. And uh, I could feel it pulling stuff out of my stomach you know, one of the tubes every now and then it would vibrate right. and yeah. I could feel the stuff coming up and going out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was real weird. And so at, at this point, um, I mean, at this point you are a double amputee. And so at this point, no, no, I'm a spinal cord injured, spinal cord injury, T9, T10. Okay. 
the double amputee did not happen until about eight years ago. Okay. Uh, after 40 years of playing wheelchair sports and, you know, having people step on me and people roll over me right. and falling out and twisting my ankles and, you know, you know, doing all those kinds of things, uh, it did damage to my blood vessels in my feet. And so, uh, uh, they had to take them off because they opened up one time and they were open for six months and the doctor said he's going to have to take them off. So he did. It started causing issues. So that, so that kind of will lead us into our next, yeah. uh, our next section here, which is you had just gotten your, your, uh, thoracic vertebrae injured to the point where you were now a paraplegic. Um, and then you're making it out of the hospital and you start coming back in, into the world. Um, what process led you to people encounter difficult things in their lives all the time. Um, and there's at some point they either have a realization that say that this doesn't define me and I'm going to move forward past it and that my life is meaningful and I'm going to keep pushing. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, you can do that and then still not get involved with the amount of athletics that you kind of got involved in. Uh, so what drove you, um, starting from like your exit to the hospital and your mental battle there to kind of build yourself back up. I mean, you, you've done marathons yeah. in wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. What, what kind of got you to the point where you were confident enough in yourself and pushing yourself forward to, to attempt a marathon? Well, I have to go back a little bit while I was in the rehab center. I remember doing all these crazy tests, psychological tests, psychiatric tests, so finally, one day after you know a couple months of doing these tests while I was still horizontal, I just said, "I'm not going to do another damn test until somebody comes and talks to me." <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, I says, uh, "Yeah, I don't blame you." You're doing all this stuff, but you're not giving me any results. So finally, the the psychologist who was there at the at the hospital came to me. He was a Kent grad as well, but he graduated. He was probably about eight or ten years older than I was, and uh, he uh, came in and had a chat with me, and he says. We just can't understand it. We just don't understand what is going on with you. I said, why? Am I crazy? He goes, no, just the opposite. You're not crazy. And you don't show any signs of being brain damaged from this whole incident that you're involved in. So, so they, were, they were doing psychological tests on you because they couldn't understand why you were so positive? Exactly. I said, Doc, I'm thankful to be alive. I mean, I could be dead. I mean, I know what kind of bull I got shot with. I mean, that does severe damage to a body, even if it goes in a part of the body. It's That's what, and that was surprising to me. I was under the impression that they were, uh, I mean, I'm used to the 553 or mm -hmm. the 556 round, and yeah. the modern day rifles. I was understanding that it was a 30 out six round mm -hmm. that, that went through your, yeah. your spine is, was insane. Like hearing that and having it set in was, oh my gosh, that's insane. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that, that, that basically is, uh, he, after he talked to me several times, he finally came out and says, there's really nothing wrong with you. <laughs> I don't understand it. It doesn't make a damn bit of sense. You're fine. You just keep doing what you need to be doing to make your life productive every single day. And Amen. I've, and I've carried that with me, uh, all my life. And, uh, to, to, but being an athlete as a kid, playing football and a little bit of baseball when I was in high school, um, I remember being in the hospital uh, in a rehab center, and there was a guy there who was uh, six foot eight, who had signed a uh, deal with the Lakers back in 1966 or something like that. Uh, not the Lakers, but uh, the Pistons. And uh, he, uh, he became my friend, and we talked basketball and football and uh, sports and he says oh by the way when you get up uh i'm playing with the cleveland uh, comets wheelchair basketball team this is prior to the cleveland cavaliers wheelchair basketball team right this is a private nonprofit group of people and uh he said we'd like you to play ball with us i said okay and uh, so i eventually got to the point where i was up i didn't i was well enough now that they would let me go on weeknights to train with the team and I was surrounded by paraplegics, uh, amputees, uh, people with other types of disabilities and it was just such a positive environment. We played at St. Ignatius High School Gymnasium mm -hmm. and it wasn't just a basketball team, it was a sports team so they had uh, track and field events as well. 
And this, you, you coordinated all of this while still being in the rehab center. Oh yeah. Was, so, so you're in the rehab center and it's just, oh, you know, I'm going to go play basketball with right. like these professional, like this, these well, sports teams. And amateurs. I mean, yeah. yeah, but that's, that's amazing that that jump where, um, being, oh, I'm not going to like, I'm in a wheelchair, but instead of thinking, oh, I'm in a wheelchair, you're like, oh, I'm going to go play basketball in a wheelchair. Well, uh, that's one thing that's always perplexed perplexed me all my life since since I've gotten hurt is the fact that people are amazed that I wanted to continue a normal life as much as I could after I got hurt. I mean, I don't see any particular unusualness about that. Not at all. I think no. it's I think it's just one of the the God-given talents that uh, I received as a young man uh, and through my faith and uh, my family and my friends. I always tell people I have the three basic Fs, faith, family, and friends. Amen. And um, um, that's sustained me. Uh, that has uh, allowed me to you know, have as normal a life as I can possibly have. Some people call it abnormal because they've never seen somebody in a wheelchair do the things that I do. But I don't see anything unusual about it. I remember I've worked on cars to, you know, maintain lots of vehicles over the years, crawled underneath them, crawled over top of the engines, you know, and uh, did all those things as well. And, uh, you know, to me, it's just, you know, living the way I'm supposed to live. I mean, I, I really don't have any hesitation to try something new. And I think that's a big, that's a, that's a principle that can be applied across pretty much pretty much everything where if you encounter a situation um, that is a roadblock, because I mean, we, we encounter roadblocks in our lives all the time and people, people encounter roadblocks and you, you have two choices. Once you get there, it's either sit there and stare at the roadblock and, mm -hmm. and curse the fact that it's in the road yeah, or decide that you're going to either climb over it. You're going to crawl under it. You're going to go yeah. around it or bust straight through it. And just, right. I'm going to live the life that I was meant to live. God gave me this ability. And through mm -hmm. my, my three basic F's, I'm going to keep trucking down this yeah. road. And that's what you did. Yeah. You just, that's, that's amazing. Well, the other thing too, is that, uh, you know, uh, the, the drive that I had, you know, was, was something that was, I think, you know, given to me by God, as simple as that. Um, you know, when I first ran my first marathon, I just didn't say, I'm going to run now. I'm going to do a marathon. I've already been doing 5K and 10Ks when I lived down in Athens, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, well, I'm going to sign up for the Columbus Marathon. <laughs> so I took uh, about eight months to train for it. It was in October. What, I, so what, so what, would, what would like a daily training regimen, what does a training regimen look like that? Well, you start out yeah. slow. I mean, when you're, when you're, but I didn't have to start out slow because I'd already run a 10K, which is 6.2 miles. Right. And so it was just a matter of working it up so I could run a half marathon. And so I'd get up in the mornings. I'd go out for an hour run, usually about five miles. And then, I'd, you know, eat breakfast, go to work, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, after work, I'd go out for two hours and run 10 miles. So just work my way up to the point where I was running 15 miles, 20 miles. But I stretched that out over many months. Right. Because you have to do it gradually or you'll burn yourself out. At the same time, I knew I had to do more than basic nutrition. So I did a lot of research on what to eat, what type of proteins, what type of vegetables, what type of mixture of grains and rice and beans to get proper nutrition to rebuild my muscles. Because when, when you run 10 miles or more, you put a tremendous strain on muscles. Right. And you've got to rebuild all that sugar and lactose and lactate and everything that's in there. And uh, I, I did all that research, and uh, you know, it's a regiment. Now they have you can get your regiments right off off the computer. You can uh, get a half marathon training program uh, over a course of three months or six months, or a marathon program over six months to a year. Yeah, and through the the magical wonders of Google. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. The months of research and work on your end is now available in yeah. split seconds. Yeah, but uh, but the thing is, I'd never run a long course like that, and I hadn't I didn't have time to go up to Columbus to check out the course. So I'm running this course blind. I was just following the the arrows on the on the corners, and I was following the people who were standing at the corners directing you. So I didn't know what kind of terrain I was going to be over. It was going to be on brick streets. It was going to be on gravel streets. It was going to be going through alleys, um, you know, that kind of thing. So every time you go to a course you've never run, 
you know, you're, you've got to be a little bit prepared for the, the unknown. They definitely have to be adaptable. Absolutely. You're running through. Absolutely. And this is the first year I think they changed the, the Columbus Marathon from the middle of October to the first weekend in November. And it was 34 degrees, and there was a 25-mile-an-hour headwind blowing almost the whole race. And, you know, I was dressed warm, but, you know, uh, my core was perfectly fine. It was my extremities that were freezing cold, my fingers. Uh, I was fine while I was going through the neighborhoods, but when I got out onto East Broad Street, uh, headed into downtown, going west, that headwind from the west at, uh, let's see, it started running, I think, at 9 o'clock in the morning, and this is four hours later. I'm headed into the, I got about four-mile run into downtown. And, uh, man, that wind it just cooled me down because I was soaking wet from sweat. And we didn't have the high-tech clothes like we have now. Right. You know, this is 1986. And, uh, you know, had cotton and wool. And I was just freezing by the time I got to the finish line. But I made it. I made it four hours and fifty-eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, but you you made it post. Yes. Everything that happened, you ran it. I mean, yes. That's... And uh, then I had then I had a two-hour drive back to Athens, Ohio. Uh, but fortunately, uh, the people there, we ended up going into the underground at the uh, parking lot, the state house parking lot. And uh, they had salamanders down there with blowing heat on me. They put three of them on me, and they fed me full of yogurt and various other things to fill me full of Gatorade. and Reestablish all those electrolytes and all that, Absolutely. all that fuel they use. So for a lot of um, listeners, I mean, they're probably trying to figure out how you ran the marathon post-injury and stuff like that. So why don't we talk about um Well, I ran in my wheelchair. Uh, you know, this is 1986. We didn't have fancy athletic wheelchairs. Right. We didn't have fancy athletic wheelchairs when I played wheelchair basketball and ran track back in 1971, 72, 73, 74, 75. Um, but I did have the first of the new athletic aluminum chairs. It was a solid frame. It was something relatively new. And uh, I, uh, I used that for my racing in. And I still use that type of wheelchair, but right. now it's titanium. But... Uh, yeah, it, it worked fine for me. I've tried one of the fancy racing chairs, but I don't get enough running time because it takes a crew. It takes three people to get me out of my regular chair into the athletic chair. So I just keep running in, a, in the same type of chair I ran back in the, in the early 80s, just a solid frame wheelchair. And, uh, you know, I've run. It keeps it, yeah, it keeps at least the training consistent, too, across yeah. all of that time. I mean, you know what to expect when you get into the chair every time. Yeah. So the postscript to that is 30 years later, I ran the Columbus Marathon again. And uh, I was uh, uh, six minutes slower than I was 30 years ago. <laughs> so now I'm, That's you know. Six minutes over 30 years. is Yeah. So instead of being 86, I'm, uh, or being 36, <laughs> I'm 66. And uh, it's a whole different course. And uh, so I, I don't think that's too bad. And I've got one more marathon to run, and that'll be the Pro Football Hall of Fame marathon. I told myself back in 86 that I was going to ruin three of them in my lifetime. So I'm going to do the Pro Football Hall of Fame marathon in April, either this coming year or the year after. Probably the year after, because I don't think I'll have enough time to train now for that to happen next April. And, and, and establishing a goal like that, I mean, to, to say that I'm going to run... So not only, hey, I'm going to go play basketball uh, in the wheelchair and, and, and mm. keep pushing in that. Because not everybody that has two fully functional legs runs a marathon mm -hmm. in their lifetime, let alone three. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that is definitely commendable on your part to say, I'm going to run these three marathons. Well, um, as I tell lots of people, you know, God gave me talents. And one of those talents is being able to make a wheelchair go and do it well. And uh, I have no problem using my talents because I would be, you know, denying him by not using my talents. I and think there's there's an a, like a, a an insatiable amount of stubbornness that comes <laughs> along with that too, where it's just like I'm not yeah. going to let this happen. 
Yes. I'm going to push it. I'm going to drive. Like you mentioned that drive mm-hmm. being something that God gave you. And it's just Absolutely. that that drive can, I mean, people can perceive it as either, oh, this person is super stubborn. Or if you look at it in the positive light, it's just, I'm driven. Mm-hmm. I, I have this ability yeah. to set my mind to something. And once I set my mind to something, that that brick wall might show up in the road, that that pothole might show up in the road, but I'm either going above it, over it, around it, or through it. Exactly. And I'm going to make it to my three marathons. Yeah. Um, regardless. And, uh, you know, when I go to races, even the 5K races that I do, I do a lot of them, obviously, because they're easy and they're short, but it's a, it's a fun thing to do. I mean, I'm always stopped by people who just come over to me and they're just amazed and uh, they tell me how much of an inspiration I am and... I guess I am. I don't know. I mean, I just go do what I need to do, and uh, it's, it's a lot hard. Of fun. It's hard to see uh, the the inspiration if you're looking at yourself in the mirror. Mm-hmm. I think because there's you, there's only so much that you can do to understand other people's perceptions of what your life is in the total. Because um, you can see your day to day actions, and you know what your day to day actions are. Mm-hmm. But over the course of a lifetime, yeah. Um, I think it's difficult for people to kind of look at themselves and be, I'm just a well, farm kid from East Canton. Exactly. It's humbling, you know. You hear that from people and you think, oh, my God, it's just me. What am I doing that's inspiring these people? So, um, you know, it, it's it's hard to deal with when you're not used to doing it, you know. And, uh, you know, hard to deal with the fact that people are giving you this compliment, I guess, is the hardest thing. So I've learned over the years to just say thank you, appreciate your uh, your comments. Right. And uh, move on because if I sit and think about it, I might get a big head. I don't want a big head. I just want to do what I need to do every day to get through and to be productive and to give thanks. And, and I hear that a lot from um, being just being in the Air National Guard um, or my, my friends that are police officers, my friends that are firefighters. There's a lot of people that are like, oh, I could never do that. Thank you mm-hmm. um, for what you do, for wearing the uniform or for being the one that's ready to run into mm-hmm. a building that's on fire or, yeah. or a police officer or something like that. And a lot of the guys that I know and the, and the women that I know that are in those positions are, I'm not, I'm not the real hero. Like, right. You need to look at the people that didn't make it home or the people that um, really put their lives on the line and stuff like that or, um, and that's, I think, a big thing where, just like you said, just saying thank you, um, because at some point, if you try to uh, shove that compliment back at them, I don't think that that's, a lot of people think that humility is pushing back and not accepting those compliments right. or because those compliments will make you prideful and give you a big head or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think the the dichotomy to that is humility is accepting those gifts that God gave you. Um, and pushing them out to the world, but then also having a deep understanding of how short you fall mm-hmm. of everything. And yeah. so when those people say thank you, it, it's to make them feel good too. Yeah. They want to express their thanks to you. Mm-hmm. And so if you turn that thanks away, it's super. Yeah. Um, that is what makes you, I think, more prideful mm-hmm. than accepting their thanks and allowing them to express their gratitude for your lifestyle or your inspiration and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so you're planning on doing the the marathon, this next one. Um, how old? So how old will you be when that is completed? Well, I'll either be uh, turning uh, 69, or if I do it the next year, I'll be turning 70 because I was born in May. And uh, so uh, they are, the marathon that I'll be running in Canton will be in April sometime. So. And, and, and that's what I'm thinking about trying to do a marathon. And I, I am 23. So <laughs> uh, having a, a 70 or somebody that's going to be 70 say oh, that they want to complete the marathon 20, is definitely making me reconsider the amount of work <laughs> I'm willing to put into. Well, when I was 23, I was running uh, with the Cleveland Wheelchair Athletic Association team. And uh, I made it to the nationals every year I qualified. And uh, I was never in the top 10, but I was never at the very bottom. I was never number 20 because they, you know, they, they only took 20 people in every particular group. And in my classification, I, I was one of 20. And the lowest I ever ran was number 18. The highest I ever ran was 15 out of 20, doing 100 meters, 200 meters. And... Uh, but that's, I mean, that's out of 20 at the national level. At the national uh, level, yeah. yes. So yeah, that's absolutely, that's awesome. Um, so, um, and, it, and that, I mean, there's a lot of people that I think that like the Paralympics 
or or Those other events things, like yeah. that are they're amazing they're amazing things and people people are like oh it's the paralympics the paralympics are on what i qualified twice for those but i didn't go because i was finishing up my schooling and i couldn't uh, go those two times so right and that's that's kind of where i want to go to next so you you not only made it out of, of that and decided in the rehabilitation center i'm going to go play basketball or i'm going to run three marathons in my lifetime and all these physical mm-hmm. things um but the, uh, another piece of that uh, that we kind of alluded to with the physician just saying like you're there's nothing mentally wrong with you i mean you're just a positive person um is kind of that uh, there's i mean there's different pillars right of a person mm-hmm. you have your spiritual pillar your mental pillar your physical pillar so obviously physically you were super stubborn yeah. and like this is just how it's going to be i'm going to be super athletic I'm going to do all these things. So then mentally you pursued an education um, and you were an educator. Yes. Right. For an extended amount of years. Yes. I graduated from camp with a bachelor of science degree in uh, secondary education and social studies with a major concentration in four out of the five areas. Um, I didn't teach right away. I took some civil service tests, worked for the state of Ohio. And then um, I decided to then eventually run for county commissioner. I was a county elected official in Athens, Ohio, for two terms okay. as a county commissioner. And then I renewed my teaching certificate, and I started teaching at the vocational school in Nelsonville, Ohio. And then uh, I taught there until my mother started getting a little dementia, and I uh, came up to help my father take care of her. <clears throat> and then I... Uh, I uh, taught with Canton City Schools and uh, Sandy Valley School District and Perry School District uh, before I retired. And those are all all social studies that you, you were teaching? Uh, social and studies and a lot with uh, special ed as well, too. That's awesome. So what was it like? Um, I mean, the main focus of JJD um, is, is, is leadership, mm-hmm. right? And... Um, having a meaningful life and pushing those types of things forward. So as a county commissioner, um, when you were down in Athens, uh, especially with that population that's down there, the the Appalachian population, um, as a county commissioner in that area, what was it like, uh, like leadership positions in that area? And how, how did you have to maneuver um, some of those leadership positions and in, in being a commissioner in that area? Well, it was, uh, it was fascinating because in Athens you have two types of uh, population. You not only have the rural Appalachians, but you have the educated and the students who are at uh, Ohio University. And then you also have a group of students at a place called Hawking College, or back then it was Hawking Technical College. And so uh, the biggest thing that I, I found was being totally open, totally honest, and giving information to the public as much as you can possibly give them. Uh, and being straightforward and being honest with them. I mean, a clear mission and an open line of communication. Clear mission and open line of communication. Because no matter what you want to do when you go into office, the office has a way of taking over. Yeah, you've got your goal and your mission, but you also have to deal with everything that has to come every single day. All the day-to-day functions. Because you're, you're not just a county commissioner. You're an arm of the state legislature. You have to follow the higher revised code that deals with uh, the county officials. And so you're dealing with those aspects to the point where you have to follow those codes, you have to follow those rules, and you have to follow what the state tells you to do. So you not only have your projects that you want to work on, but you're also following those. And then last but not least, you're dealing with the public. Uh, I remember taking a phone call one of the first few days that I was there. The, uh, the little old lady kept, started talking to me about the fact that her property wasn't right. There was something wrong with the deed and the, the way the, the property was divided up. And uh, I talked to, after I got done talking where I talked to the other two commissioners, oh, we've dealt with her. She's just a kook. So I, I thought, well, I'll do a little research into it. And I did a little research into it and found out her property was laid out wrong in comparison to what was said in the deed. It all it just took was somebody to actually read the deed and look at the plat map and follow the measurements. Right. And this woman had been dealing with the problem for almost 15 years. Nobody took care of it for her. And I was able to find it and take care of it for her. And, you know, every time I saw her or she would call into the commissioner's office, she only ever called me. <laughs> you established that trust. Yes. I mean, if, if you have a, an, an issue that's been going on for 15 years and somebody finds such a simple 
um, response to that. I mean, m- militarily, especially I mean, being an NCO, mm-hmm. if I have a if I have a person that has an issue, mm-hmm. um, and they come to me and they've been dealing with it for an extended period of time, I, I mean, working customer service, no one ever comes to see me happy. Right. So, you you have to uh, cater to that to that person. Right. I mean, regardless, and and especially if um, what I found even in nursing. If there's other nurses that say, oh, this patient is crazy, we've had them multiple times and stuff like that, a lot of times it's how you present yourself to that person mm-hmm. is how they're going to reflect back to you. Absolutely. So if you present yourself to that person in a caring manner, like you're trying to, to help them out and you care about their needs and you're going to get them addressed, their perception can be completely different and their reaction is going to be totally different to the way that you're putting yourself forward. Whereas if you were one of the other commissioners, like you said, they were like, oh, this lady's a kook. Uh, we don't want to deal with her. We've already tried to deal with her in the past. And then she automatically is just assumes like, oh, when I call in, they're going to, mm-hmm. they're going to think that I'm crazy. They're not going to help me. Well, you hit on the key word trust. I mean, I, I, was, I was straightforward and honest with everybody and it helped build trust with my community. And, uh, you know, even when we had emergencies, uh, I was a commissioner in 1980, I got elected in 84. There was a big storm in 85, uh, big snowstorm, and, uh, you know, had the county paralyzed, basically. And I was stuck in the office. I was the only one in the office. But the other ones finally eventually made it there. And, you know, we had to set up a command post and all that stuff to deal with people who were stranded in their houses or roofs being caved in because of the snow pressure. So, right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed uh, doing that as well. And so, so you were one of three, was there, there's that's, two other commissioners and you were. Yes. That's the way it's set up in Ohio. It's county commissioner set up, uh, except for if they become a charter like Akron as a charter. Okay. And they have, I think eight or nine, uh, charter members who were elected. So, so we kind of hit on uh, trust there a little bit. I mean, with that, with that woman as an example. So if you were, if someone were to try to step into that public office, I mean, there's a lot of people that are focused on, on, um, how politicians interact with each other. I mean, it's a huge, it'll always be a hot button topic. Um, because we're an elected, we're represented by elected officials. I mean, that's just how the country is. So, uh, your advice or like if you were going to try to distill down what it would take to be successful in that type of leadership position, as far as like virtues, like the trust and other things like that, what kind of advice would you give to somebody that maybe would want to step up into a position like that someday ways for them to develop themselves and handle themselves in order to be the, have the highest possibility of success dealing with, like you said, you're dealing with the higher ups at state, but you also have to cater to that little old lady. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to be honest and you have to be straightforward. You have to be tell them the truth. You can't lie to them. Because you lie to them, you break that trust. Uh, you break that bond. It's a sacred bond to be a public official, especially at the county level. Uh, because, you know, I was fortunate enough to be a county commissioner in a small county. We only had 64,000 people there. And, uh, you know, 18 to 20,000 of them would disappear for three months out of the year. Uh, so it was uh, it was important to get around and get to know the people as well too. And I, I was in every township and I was in every township building and every school and every church. And, uh, it was important to be with everybody to the point where you, you make that connection and they can then feel like they can talk to you and people didn't hesitate to call me. So trust, honesty, and being open. And uh, being able to tell the people everything that there is that you can tell them, it's yeah. important. I think that there's a uh, there's a huge difference between being open facetiously, because mm-hmm. um, I think that people can tell whether you genuinely care about what they're uh-huh. saying or you're just letting them talk to to satisfy them. Uh, right. Because you're like, oh, if I just let them get this off their chest, then they'll leave me alone. No, no, <laughs> you don't do that. I mean, you genuinely listen to people because people are uncomfortable talking to elected officials, even on the county level. And so you you have to show a genuine interest in what they're talking about and and then follow it up with with action. Uh, That is I think that that is probably the most important piece is uh, showing people that you're willing to follow up with action mm -hmm. um, and not just talk about it. Um, And that's kind of the principle. We'll kind of wrap up 
what wrap up everything with um there's a reason why when i started jjd thoughts um that i picked the word thoughts right Mm -hmm. because i think that that's kind of the basis for everything that we kind of have this weird ability as humans to have conscious thought and look at this ourselves in the mirror and be like oh that's me Mm -hmm. um i think that really the only other animals that can do that are like dolphins which is weird because why would dolphins be the only ones that other can do that but you know if a dog sees itself in a mirror it's gonna start barking at it because it thinks it's another dog Mm -hmm. but we have the ability to have these thoughts and and basically split our minds into two things and kind of argue with each other and and come up with a different example but the progression that follows is that you have these thoughts that are like seeds and then those thoughts turn in to your actions those actions if they're performed consistently, turn into habits. Those habits turn into character, and those character eventually guide where your life is going to end up. Absolutely. Um, so to kind of to kind of bring everything together, um, I mean, you grew up as a farm kid. Um, the tra- the the day I won't even say tragic because the the amount of things that you've been able to do with your life um, after being shot at Kent State um, is not a life of tragedy by any means. No. Um, so just the day that you were shot at Kent State and then moving forward after that and everything, what thoughts consistently, um, actions consistently on a day-to-day basis? Because I think that that's kind of what people need. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially in an area, I mean, we both live now in an area where um, where we hit an all-time high for suicides at the high school level. Right. Um, and so if you are able to change thoughts, I think that a lot of that depression, a lot of that, those issues of not feeling meaningful, not feeling wanted, not feeling like you can push through can be changed, mm-hmm. but it has to be done on a consistent basis. So what were your thoughts, your actions, your, the habits that you developed um, to kind of lead into the character and who you are? Well, I, I think it goes back to the very beginning, uh, waking up every day and giving thanks, even before I got hurt. I woke up every day and said, thank you, God, you know, I'm going to do what I can. And, um, you know, having, as I said, my family, my faith and my friends, um, you know, they're the ones who support you, uh, you know, having your faith, you know, having something to, to, to look forward to, to understand and to study, um, is very important. Uh, having your friends to, to support you and to, uh, be involved in your life and your family, the support that your family gives you. you know, all those are, are the things that help you develop your thoughts and your habits and your routines. Uh, without, without that, you don't have a life. I mean, you, you get up, you thank God, you, you set a goal for the day or several goals, and you move forward with what needs to be done, and you plan for the future, even though you it's not given to you, but you plan for the future. Yeah, I always heard if you want to hear God laugh, you want to tell him what your plans are. Yeah. So <laughs> you can only plan so far ahead without him trying to divert. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, it's nothing magical. You know, it's it's being honest with yourself, uh, you know, getting up every day and giving thanks and, you know, you know figuring out what you're going to do today and do some plans for the future. Because you never know <laughs> if you're going to get to them. But it's always good to have a plan. Right. So, yeah. Well. Um, I don't have anything spectacular to say. or. And I, I don't think that, it, that there is this giant spectacular answer that is this. I always read online. There's like, oh, these are the three ways for, yeah. for you to be successful. Or <laughs> here's nine ways to do this. Or 12 ways to do that. I'm like, none of these things. Do people think that you're going to Google something? You're going to read something and be like, oh, if I start drinking a, a protein shake in the morning and then I start running two miles every day, my, my mental state is all of a sudden going to change where I'm like, yeah, that could be a part. If you start oh, yeah. being physically active, definitely, then that could be a piece of it. But I don't think that there's anything, there's no three ways to do something every day in life. You're faced with choices. You're faced with a dichotomy and you either have a choice to move in a positive direction or you have a choice to move in a negative direction and nobody ends up just like, in in some place mm-hmm. that's a super super negative place yeah after a situation like this in 24 hours it's right. choice after choice after choice after choice that kind of led you there and you just happened to make choice after choice after choice that led you to a positive end result um, Absolutely. 
And that's, that's awesome. And that's what it boils down to is just daily choices of gratitude, of pursuing goals, of pushing yourself, of not settling, of, of making sure that you're giving the best that you have mm-hmm. daily. Yeah. Well, I got some advice from somebody long ago and they told me it was a teacher when I was in school. He said, stay curious. And then tried to carry that with me as well too so just ask why yeah <laughs> don't 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 settle for if something happened or or you encounter something ask ask why yeah why follow up on that why do the over research. and over and over again i i like that a lot i try to live um my i always tell people my favorite word is why when you're studying for nursing or you're studying for really anything or yeah. just life in general if you ask why that's happening mm-hmm. and then go to the deep the next question that's deeper and then go to the next question that's deeper Life is never boring. No. Because you can keep asking questions and you tra- keep pursuing answers. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, all right. Um, I, again, like appreciate uh, you taking the time to sit down with us um, with our little bit of microphone trouble that we had in the beginning here. Okay. And then it's all part of the game. The ice cream man and everything. Um, I would like to give a giant shout out to Jacob um, running our microphones and our audio. He's been extremely patient with us as we've kind of sat here and discussed life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, again, this was episode one of JJD Thoughts Podcast. I'm Jan Almasy, and we had Dean Kaler on with us today.